0: Please take your Bibles with me this morning and turn to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, this morning as we continue to walk through 1 Corinthians. You notice we're nearly done, there's only uh, 16 chapters in 1 Corinthians. We've been in this series for some time. It's gotten a little bit longer as it has gone along as uh, things, things typically do. However, um, we're, we're working our way well now through chapter 15, and we should be into 16 and then finish with 1 Corinthians in no time. Uh, we are also nearly finished with our eschatology series in Sunday night. It was a mini-series. It wasn't a full series, um, and that will be finishing next week. And then the week after that, I'll be gone. Uh, we'll have a guest speaker. Uh, that the following week, we will be beginning in the evening, um, walking through First Thessalonians. And in the morning, once we finish First Corinthians, we'll start a series in First Samuel. So I'm very excited about both of those series coming up, as the Lord has laid them upon my heart. But we still do have some work to do in First Corinthians. First Corinthians 15, verses 29 through 34, this morning. The old adage goes, one man's trash is another man's treasure. My wife and I have been doing a great deal of Craigslisting lately. We've had many things that we've needed, improving our home and such. And uh, much of what we've received, we've received for free. Very large, good conditioned windows and doors. um, Exterior doors with glass, I mean just lovely, uh, you know, may need a little bit of love, a coat of paint, some latex caulk, something, but great shape. We say, how could people be giving this away? Well, they don't need it. They don't want it. It's cluttering up their house. Their trash is our treasure. My, my father it was, a, it was and is, uh, not so much uh, as he gets older, but was in particular when I was growing up, a notorious dumpster diver. My wife is one of those two. And um, one of those people where you'd know, he, he'd, bring, he'd come home from work and, and there'd be a, a, a beat bike in the back of, his truck, or there'd be an old cabinet with hinge, no hinges and the door was busted in half, but, but, but it was on the side of the road. And, and hey, they were just throwing that away. You can't throw that away, right? It's still useful. It's still good. So we can, we can fix this up. We can make this nice again. One man's trash is another man's treasure. Where one sees worth, another sees garbage. Fact is, as we think about this concept... It's kind of the same way when you think on a human level with life and its meaning, with motivations. Everybody in this life has a different motivation for what they're doing, and it's as varied as the the stars in the night sky. What makes life worth anything? One man's worth is not another man's worth. My wife and I really enjoy just kind of going up outside looking up in the middle of the night and watching some stars. Another man has no time for that. There's other things that are far more worth his time than that. Worth. Is there any meaning? Is there any drive? Is there any purpose to life? Some are motivated by money. They set aside everything, anything, to attain unto that comfort and security of physical wealth. Some are motivated by their appearance. They'll put Hundreds, thousands of dollars into looking a certain way, clothing and 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 um, hair and makeup and such, or or they will um, devote themselves to eating nothing fun, so that they can maintain a certain uh, figure, a certain um, a physical posture. They will exercise. They will they will push their body. They will weary their body, uh, all in the name of. Uh, their, their physical physique or, or their health. Some are motivated by identity. I think oftentimes of um, men that have, have played a sport such as football or something for years, or even men who had been in the military for several years. And you think of a man who'd been in the military for several years, and I've talked to several where it's been this way. In the military, they were somebody, they had rank, they had position, they had purpose. They had a place to go and, 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 and a reason for being. And then they step back into the civilian sector and all of a sudden, they're nobody. They, they, they don't have that rank anymore. The authority that they had spent all of those years earning was taken from them like that as they stepped out of the uniform and into a pair of jeans. And so there are men who have wrapped up their lives and their identity in something military in something, uh, football, in something, uh, maybe Olympics, training for the Olympics, to where even perhaps at a relatively young age, they, they feel like there's nothing left in their life. There's no purpose left. Their purpose has come and gone. Perhaps you can relate to some of these ideas because these are the things that society is constantly placing before us. There are tugs in society to make our purpose, to wrap our purpose around perhaps uh, the, the newest gizmo, um, how many people are, 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 are living for what's next, for what they can buy next, for what they can gain next, living from holiday to holiday, uh, living uh, from business deal to business deal, um, living from relationship to relationship, looking for meaning, grasping for something that can motivate them to wake up the next morning. But you and I are different. Did you know that? If you're a born-again believer in this room, if you have accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you are different from that. Now, that doesn't mean you're living it and I'm not seeking to tell you that, that you're superior to anyone outside these stained glass windows. I'm not trying to give you a superiority complex. But what I do have to tell you this morning on the authority of God's Word is that we are Different. We may not be superior in character. We ought to be, but we may not. We may not be superior in talent or ability or looks. But what we do have as believers in Jesus Christ is superior purpose. The reason that we get up in the morning is different and eternally far superior to anything that the world can conjure we have something actually worth living for. Yeah, put it that way? Not something that will die and be buried. Not simply a legacy passed down on this earth. You're not striving day in and day out, getting up in the morning simply so that you can uh, have your name written in a history book or, 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 or put, get, be put on a plaque somewhere on a wall. Those are motivations to be sure. But you know, at the end of the day, aren't they shallow motivations? I mean, the name will be forgotten. The history will be skewed. We'll end up in the grave like everyone else will end up in a grave. And it will be over. But the believer who has pleased God is doing something that will echo into eternity. It won't end at the grave. It won't end with man's recognition. It won't end with applause on this earth. None of that may ever come on this earth. But what will happen is in eternity, there will be rewards cast down at the feet of our Savior Jesus Christ. Do you want that life? Do you want a life that's really worth living? Do you want more than just the day-to-day that defines the culture in which we live? True meaning, that elusive concept that has dogged men since the very beginning, tormenting them into a lifelong quest for something that will never satisfy their longings or grant them anything more than fleeting pleasure or temporary peace. If you're a believer, you have been given through the resurrection of Jesus Christ an eternal purpose and a perpetual life of meaning. There's not one second of one day where you have to wonder if you have a purpose. What you, there's not one second of one day where you have to wonder what you are on this earth to do. Because if you have been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, the scriptures have told you your purpose. And it is written clearly for you to see. But do you know why most Christians don't necessarily feel this way? What they do with this reality? They set that life of worth and that life of meaning aside in order to fulfill the same earthly desires and lusts that the world around them is using to drown out their conspicuous absence of true meaning. The world knows they don't have anything to really cling on to, so they seek to fill that void with something. And you know what too many Christians are doing today? We're busy spending our time doing the same thing. We, we forget the meaning and the purpose that we have and we are busy filling our lives with the things of this world in order to somehow satisfy and somehow bring pleasure and somehow bring meaning to a life whose meaning is wrapped up in something entirely different. And see, we can understand that because we are in Christ. The world can't. But the question is, are we doing anything about it? Too often you and I are doing by choice what the unbelieving world is doing only because they have never known anything better. Only because they don't understand the superior nature of the purpose found through Christ. In 1 Corinthians 15 verses 1 through 6, we learned about the gospel In verses 12 through 20, we learned about the importance of the resurrection. In verses 21 through 28, last week, we learned the doctrine itself of the resurrection. And this week, I would like us to learn about how the resurrection should affect the way we live our lives, day in and day out, moment by moment, morning by morning, evening by evening, how the resurrection and the truths that we've been learning about for the past several weeks should touch and affect our lives today tomorrow, and into the future. So we'll hit briefly. We have hit briefly through the several messages, some of these concepts, but today is almost an entire message of application in a manner of speaking as Paul teaches us in verses 29 through 34. But first, there's some cleanup work to do. So I invite you, uh, if you're there in your Bibles, to look with me. We'll read uh, verses 29 through 34 and then jump right in. Uh, for, For context, let's start in verse 26. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death, for he hath put all things under his feet. But when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted, which did put all things under him. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Else what shall they do which are baptized for the dead if the dead not rise not at all? Why are they then baptized for the dead? And why stand we in jeopardy every hour? I protest by your rejoicing, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die daily. If after the manner of men I have fought with the beasts at Ephesus, what advantageth it me if the dead rise not? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. Awake to righteousness and sin not, for some have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Paul begins in verse 29 with what, may, what, what many expositors call the most controversial statement in the New Testament. There are better than 200 different interpretations that have been espoused concerning the meaning of this phrase. Let me read it for you. Else what shall they do which are baptized for the dead? If the dead not, rise not at all, why are they baptized, then baptized for the dead? And we're not going to solve the mystery today. I'm not going to tell you that your pastor has the answer that 200 expositors um, don't have. However, I am going to share with you what I believe the text is saying. And uh, rest assured, it is shared by many men who are much smarter than I Within the context of this verse, we understand several things. First, we must understand, remember 1 Corinthians, that Paul is speaking in the context of correction. 1 Corinthians is a book of correction. The Corinthian church is doing a lot of things poorly. They are not just slipping into a little bit of misunderstanding or they're not just a little bit off the mark. Uh, These folks are deeply steeped in sin. There are people in this church that are way, way off on their theology. I mean, think about the stuff that we've learned in this book. There's a, there's a man in the church who was in a, a immoral sexual relationship with his mother-in-law. There are people in the church that are going to law one against another before unbelieving judges. Uh, there is a denial of the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, and now we, we, we should not be surprised that there are other errors Perhaps even this statement that Paul is making, the idea of bapti- baptism for the dead. Now, in the Greek, th- this phrase can be a little bit ambiguous. and a lot of these interpretations, people are saying, well, it's not baptizing on behalf of the dead as much as it's baptizing um, um, those who are dead. An and, and idea where they're trying to make it seem like it's actually salvation, these sorts of things. But if we read it plainly, according to the text, the Greek lends itself best to the interpretation that indeed there were people in this church who were baptizing themselves, thinking that by doing so they were acting as a proxy for someone who was already dead. That they were baptizing themselves in order to incur favor with God on behalf of somebody who is already dead. If this sounds somewhat familiar, it's because this is something that um, is carried over in Catholic theology through prayers for the dead. We'll talk about that in just a moment. There are indeed two, theo- If if it is in fact the case that there were those in the church who were teaching and operating under this idea that they can baptize themselves or baptize another as a proxy for the dead then there are two theological errors that are majorly at work here. Now, the first error is is that baptism is sufficient to save anyone or to incur favor with God. The scriptures are not ambiguous on this point you and I have quoted this morning a very important set of verses. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, which says this, you know it, we quoted it, for by grace are ye saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. The idea of these verses is that grace is the means by which salvation is received. It is given to man apart from any external action or any external effort. Salvation is not something that we do. Salvation is something that is done to us. Okay? On the contrary, water baptism is a reflection of that which has been done in our hearts. It is a public announcement of something that has already taken place. To this end, it is not baptism itself that is effectual unto any spiritual merit except that merit that comes with obedience to the command of God for in the scriptures we see the example and we see the command that one would be saved and then they would be baptized according to the command of the Lord as a public profession of their faith but it, it is not that baptism is effectual unto any spiritual merit but rather it is a symbolic uh, um, action reflecting that which has already been accomplished spiritually in your heart. I was um, at a church this past Wednesday night. I had told you several weeks ago that I had met a Russian couple when we were Craigslisting. And the second time we, we met this Russian couple, we got talking to them about church, and they go to a Baptist church in Brooklyn Park. And it's called Bethany Baptist Church, and it is a Russian Baptist church. The, it's several hundred members, and they the church service is all in Russian. Well, we were invited to come, and they said, "Oh, you know, it's, it's okay. We have we have translators. We have English translators." I thought, well, that's that's great. So my wife and I went, and our children. We went on Wednesday night. Had a wonderful time, and um, more. I was looking at their website. Uh, Cheryl was at one of their last baptisms at the lake, and. Um, Uh, I was looking at their website at the pictures of this baptism and and, and their baptisms. It was such a big deal. Um, It was so important to them. And I was talking to my wife about this and some of the cultural differences that we had experienced while we were there um, chatting with the folks. Many of the elderly didn't even speak English. Um, uh, Our our age and below uh, folks in the church, uh, they could converse with us just fine and, and the girls had a great time playing with all the kids and such. Um, But we had to listen to the service in Russian and such. And and it was was a truly uh, blessed time. As a matter of fact, um, it looks like we might... uh, Your pastor is going to be gone December 21st, the Sunday before Christmas. It looks like they might send a a ministry team to come do that Sunday for us, um, preach and sing for us. Uh, Their church might send a youth ministry team. So I'm excited about that. Lord willing, it will be the case. Um, But that being said... um, one of the things my wife and I talked about was the dynamic of baptism. In the United States, we have lost a lot of the effectual, um, important nature of a public declaration of our faith because nobody really cares in a Christianized society whether or not you make a public declaration. But you know, in the Middle East, public declaration of your faith means ostracize from family, lose your job, We were talking to the uh, missionary, the Haas family, came through about three weeks ago from Cambodia. Missionary Haas told us this. He said, you know, most people really don't have a problem when they get saved. They go to their family, they say, yeah, I accepted Christ as my Savior. The family says, okay, whatever, I don't care. But the day they get baptized, he said, that's when the family disowns them. That's when they lose their jobs. That's when their entire family their entire livelihood, that everything, their life falls beneath their feet because now they have made a public declaration. They have publicly associated themselves not with the Cambodian traditions but with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so this idea of baptism is not, is not minor. I'm not trying to uh, minimize the importance of baptism even though in in our mind, for me to say it has nothing to do with salvation immediately minimizes it because that's our Western culture. But the Western culture, Western church can't get everything right. Our, our, Our minds can't bridge that gap as well. So I'm not saying that baptism is not important, but what I'm saying is it's not salvation. Okay? For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's taught in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21. Peter is teaching and he says this, The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. Baptism doth save us. Okay, well, pastor, that doesn't help your point. Look at the next phrase. Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Baptism saves us by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But he says not the kind of baptism where you go under the water and you come back up again, putting away the filth of the flesh, rather the kind of baptism that happens when you in good conscience humbly submit yourself to God, salvation. Within the context of this, this uh, verse that Peter gives here, he was teaching about the ark, Noah's ark, And how Noah's Ark relates to is a type of salvation through Jesus Christ. In a disobedient world at the time of Noah, only eight, eight persons had the faith to step into the Ark and therefore to be saved from the judgment that was upon the world. Only eight. And Peter says that their entrance into the Ark reflects the faith that was in each of their hearts. They believed that if they entered the Ark, that God would save them. You say, well, maybe they didn't believe. Maybe they just said, well, I either enter the ark or I don't. And if it happens, well, then that's, that's good. And if it doesn't, then it doesn't. Well, no, because the world didn't do that, right? Noah was a preacher of righteousness for 120 years. There was room enough in that boat for the rest of the world to join and he was preaching that there was going to be a judgment and you know what? No one cared. No one listened. Only eight listened. Those eight through an answer of a good conscience toward God, we're saved from the flood by the ark. And Peter says it is the same way that baptism, not water baptism, but the Holy Spirit baptism, saves us. It's not that we go underwater and arise again, the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but rather that we have accepted Christ as our Savior. Our faith leads us then to obey the commands of God, one of which is to be baptized it is not the thing which saves us. We are saved by faith. And Peter specifically mentions, notice, the resurrection. We are saved by his resurrection, an answer of a good conscience toward God. See, water baptism is a picture. It's a picture of death to self. It's a pe- picture of being raised to newness of life. And so Romans chapter 6, verse 4 tells us this. Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father even so we also should walk in newness of life when you accept when you have the good the, the answer of a good conscience toward God the baptism that does save Paul says in Romans chapter 6 that an inherent aspect of that salvation was a death to self as it relates to your eternity. You transferred your faith concerning your merit before God away from any other object and placed it exclusively on the shoulders of Jesus Christ's finished work. And the purpose of this transformation, the whole purpose, the reason why this happened, the reason why Christ saved you, your purpose is so that you would no longer live life pursuing the desires that you did when you were dead in your sins, but that you should rather walk in the newness of life characterized by death to self and pursuit of God's desires. In other words, that He is going to raise you up spiritually. The resurrection of Jesus Christ in anticipation of the day when you will be resurrected physically at the second coming of Jesus Christ. So water baptism pictures and declares this change. Belief on Jesus, the answer of a good conscience toward God, secures this change. So the first theological error here is that water baptism has any effect on one's eternal destiny, that water baptism, in fact, saves. That's an error. The second theological error here, if this is, in fact, what Paul is saying, is that they believed a living person could be baptized on behalf of one already dead, and thus secure perhaps salvation, perhaps forgiveness of sins for those already dead. There were several um, possible places where this heresy might have come from as far as philosophical roots in in, uh, Greek ideas. We know that a little bit later in history, um, a man uh, in the church called Marcion would espouse these ideas. But... Such ideas, whether it be baptism for the dead or as we talked about, prayers for the dead or anything else is nowhere taught in scripture. This uh, it relates very strongly to a, a false Catholic theology uh, known as the theology of purgatory. The idea of purgatory is this. Between death and heaven, a soul must go through a time of fiery purification of their souls in uh, with the idea or, or in order to become fit to stand before God. So they, they state that if you are, in fact, chosen toward, to go to heaven... And see, purgatory is not a bad thing. It's a fiery um, persecution, if you will, but, but if, you, if you make it to purgatory, then you're happy because you know that you're in. It's only a matter of time before you get to heaven. Uh, so purgatory is not a bad thing in the Catholic idea. Um, but the idea is that your soul is marred and so you go to this place where you have to go through the the purging of your soul before you can be fit to stand before God. This notion leads to several heretical ideas. See, when we stand before God, the scriptures don't tell us that our souls must needs be purified. When we stand before God, our souls will be purified purified through Christ. The, the idea of purgatory, prayers for the dead, baptism for the dead, lends itself to the idea that when we stand before God, our souls will be pure because of our own suffering, doesn't it? Isn't that what purgatory means? That if, if, if I'm going to go through a time of fiery purging of, of my sin before I can stand before God, then when I stand before God, I will stand before Him and I will say, I am worthy to stand here because I've suffered for you. I'm worthy to stand here because I have allowed my soul to be purified. I have gone through the suffering in order to be purified to stand here. And Ephesians chapter two verse nine says that there will be no one that will be able to boast, because there's nothing that we can do that can get us into that can earn favor with God that can incur for us salvation. So it already misses the mark of the truth of God's Word when we try to fit into our our theology any sort of merit. Jesus Christ suffered for us so that we wouldn't have to suffer for our sins. Jesus Christ took upon Himself that which we could not. It strips from Jesus the, the the heresy of purgatory, it strips from Jesus, his purpose, his glory, and his atonement. And it seeks to claim that men will be in heaven because of their worthiness, not Jesus' worthiness. There was an article written November 2nd, 2012 by a, a Catholic woman called How to Help Departed Loved Ones Go to Heaven. And the thrust of the article was that those who are um, on this earth, that one of the best things you can do to help your departed loved ones get to heaven is to regularly attend Mass. And that the more reverentially you attend Mass, the, the faster your loved ones will get to heaven. And of course, it all depends on how often they attended Mass in their life as well as to how effectual your Mass attendances um, rank toward their Mass attendances. That's not in the Bible. There's nothing like that in the Bible. There's nothing even hinting like that in the Bible. It's heresy. It's false. We're coming up on October 31st, right? October 31st, Hallows Eve. Ticking over into November 1st, All Saints' Day. It's listening to some of the history of Halloween and All Saints' Day just yesterday. All Saints' Day uh, was a legitimate holiday started by the early church to remember the martyrs. It was merged when the Catholics um, began to really, the Catholic theology began to overcome uh, early church orthodoxy. It was merged with a holiday called All Souls Day. All Souls Day was a day in Catholic theology that was intended to be set aside to pray for the souls of the departed in order that they'd get to heaven faster, in order that those who didn't accept Christ might accept him, uh, be be given leniency. Might 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 be saved after the fact, All Souls' Day. And then, of course, the dressing up and such is uh, has its pagan roots in, in Celtic um, holidays. But Peter states this on the contrary in First Peter one verses eighteen and nineteen. For as much as ye you know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and and without spot. When you stand before God one day, you're not going to be able to thank your children for praying you into heaven. Your children will not be the source of your redemption. You're not going to be able to thank... uh, amount of money given to the church, number of candles lit in the church, number of times you attended Mass to get you to heaven, you will fall on your knees and you will say, I am unworthy to be here, but through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ alone, I am acceptable to my Father. That is what the Bible says. Consider also Colossians chapter 1, verse 21 and 22. And you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. Does it say that, that Jesus is going to present you holy and unblameable and reprovable as you face fiery purging of your soul? No. Paul said, you, by virtue of Jesus Christ and His atonement, you are sanctified. You are justified. You are right now holy, unblameable, and unreprovable in His sight. And it's not because of what you've done or what you are doing or what you will do. It's because of what Christ has done for you. That's what the Bible teaches Romans 14, final one before we move on. Verses 10-12 through says this, For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, As I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess to God. So then every one of us shall give an account of himself to God. When we stand before God one day, we will not stand on the merit or with excuses based upon actions of another. We will stand on the merit of Jesus Christ alone or we will stand and we will be condemned as guilty for not personally believing on the name of Jesus Christ to be saved. There's no one who will be able to credit himself or a friend or a church for his merit. So we've talked about the error. The question then becomes, why did Paul bring it up here? Why did Paul bring this up here? Well, Paul was likely, in a manner of speaking, killing two birds with one stone. Paul, uh, remember the context of his argument that it surrounds those in the church who denied the resurrection. But apparently, this same group of people who denied the resurrection also believed in baptism of the dead. And this is where theology begins to contradict. Can you see the contradiction? If there is no resurrection, then what good would it do anyone to be baptized for the dead, even if it were legitimate, right? You're being baptized for the dead, but there's no resurrection, so the dead don't have any destination. They, They don't have any physical resurrection. They don't have any eternal life. They don't have any eternal hope. So how silly is it that these same people that are steeped in the error of baptizing for the dead are the same people that are saying that there's no resurrection. Their theology contradicts itself, as false theology often does. If there is no resurrection, then baptism is of all things most meaningless. Whatever the early church false doctrine was that Paul is combating here, it was deeply contradictory, not only to scripture, but also to logic. So Paul says, even in your false make-believe world of heretical doctrine, the resurrection is necessary in order to fit. And remember, that's his argument. His argument is about the resurrection and its necessity. We hasten on. Verse 30, he says this, And why stand we in jeopardy every hour? He asks about himself and the other apostles. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, remember, we're back on that concept, then why are we throwing ourselves under the bus for Christ, in a manner of speaking? Why are we putting our lives on the line? What could possibly motivate Paul to live this life of misery if he didn't recognize that at the end there was eternal life? He says in verse 31, I protest this idea. I protest by your rejoicing or your boasting or your pride, which I have in our Lord. He says, I die daily. It's interesting in the Greek manuscript that that phrase, I die daily, is actually at the very beginning of the sentence. It's the thing that has the, the greatest of emphasis upon it. If if I may say it this way, Paul is somewhat sickened. He is is, is vehemently in protest against the soft and comfortable Christianity that falls into false doctrine only because they have not given their lives to Christ. Only because they have not lived in such a way that their lives have become um, as difficult as a Christian's life might very well be. See, often false theologies arise out of a time of cultural acceptance for the gospel. When things get easy for Christians, it's easy for false doctrine to arise. That's why the Western world is steeped, chock full of false doctrine today. Why is it that the prosperity gospel finds such a stronghold in the United States? Could you imagine those Middle Eastern Christians accepting a prosperity gospel? Could you imagine the Christians in Cambodia accepting a prosperity gospel? I don't think Joel Osteen has a a real strong foothold in most third world countries. The reason being because the power of positive thinking doesn't get them out of the beheadings and the church burnings and the house burnings that they're going through. If, If living for Christ brings them their best life now, And what the Middle Eastern martyrs and Christians and what the Cambodian Christians and the Chinese Christians, if what they're going through today is their best life in Christ, then they're not going to want anything to do with God. But see, they're not living their best life now. They are living now looking forward to their best life later. And that is the doctrine of the resurrection. We live today. We suffer today. We struggle today. We face scorn for our faith. We we get doors slammed in our face. We get no thank yous. We get get out of here. We get these things. We get worse. Uh, Christians in other parts of the country, uh, other parts of the world, as we've mentioned, houses being burned down, families being taken, um, families being killed, uh, the, them being beheaded, all of these things they're facing knowing that the suffering of this time is not worthy to be, be compared to that which is to follow. And that's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Look at this with me. 2 Corinthians 4. You don't have to turn. It'll be on the screen behind me. Um, 2 Corinthians 4, verses 16 through 18. Paul says this, "...for which cause we faint not, but though our outward man perish..." The the, the the part of us that's living it's struggling it's struggling through persecution it's struggling through illness and disease and, and and these things though our outward man perish yet the inward man is renewed day by day for our light affliction which is but for a moment this life that is, is, is fleeting this life that is but a vapor this life that is blinking it's gone our light affliction which is but for a moment worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory our best life then, while we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are unseen, not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So we don't live for today. We don't live for the money. We don't live for the wealth. We don't live for the fame. We don't live for the health. We don't live uh, those things now because we have something coming later. We live for then. We live for eternity. We live for that which is not seen. We live for that which is spiritual. So he says, I protest. He says, I protest by your rejoicing. Every day Paul must die to himself. He says, I die daily in order to willingly suffer the pain and the shame and the disgrace of the cross. And now a group of believers in the church of Corinth is trying to say that all of it is for nothing. They're trying to teach the church that it's all for nothing, that there is no resurrection, that this life is all that there is, that Paul's efforts are worthless. It was a philosophy at the time called Epicureanism. And it very well might have rooted itself deep in the ideas of the Corinthian church. So Paul protests and deeply, and he says this in verse 32. He says, If I, after the manner of men, Oh, excuse me, if after the manner of men I have fought with the beasts at Eph- Ephesus, what is it me if the dead rise not? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. The beast at Ephesus was a group of false teachers, again, possibly Epicureans. But he, the, the idea when, when he speaks of this, uh, very similar to um, other epistles where they called false teachers beasts, um, or or dogs or mongrels or, or or these sorts of terms, very harsh terms. It's not the only time that we see this idea. Um, the, their philosophies often appeal to the senses, often justified sin, and so they found great popularity among the people. And 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 oftentimes these philosophies, just like philosophies in American society, work their way into the church. So these these godless philosophies. Um, get renamed and renigged and repainted and and then all of a sudden they're Christian. It's the same philosophy, just has Christian titles. So Paul asks if his motivation for fighting these false teachers was only on a human level, only after the manner of men, only him saying, as a man, this is what I want to do with my life. (laughs) If it's only material, if it was only temporal... If Paul had no eternal hope that compelled his strong stance of doctrine, his strong stance against false teaching, he said, well, then what advantage do I have in this life? If the resurrection is false, then every sacrifice Paul made for the message of the gospel was worthless. He didn't become rich off his messages. He wasn't living in comfort. It's easy to see. You know, when, when we see a pastor who's living and he's wealthy and he's comfortable, it's easy to look at that and to say, well, I know why he got into ministry. But that couldn't be said with Paul. He had no such comforts. He was beaten. He was stoned and left for dead. He had to flee over the walls of cities lest the governor of Damascus would capture him. He lived a pretty tough life. He says, what advantage did I have in this life? If The only reason I did this was for human reasons. If the dead don't rise, if there's no life to come, no resurrection, no hope of glory, then we ought to follow the advice of the Epicureans. We ought to follow the advice of humanistic philosophy. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Soak it all up, folks. Enjoy it while you have it. Enjoy today because once it's gone, it's gone. Enjoy this life because this is all you get. So live it up. That's the full Isn't that humanism? Isn't that making its rounds as much today as it ever has? This is all that life is good for without the resurrection of the dead. Did you know that? People, they, they, they can wrap up their, their meaning for their lives and all sorts of things. They can wrap it up in philanthropy. They can wrap it up in education. They can wrap it up in, in all sorts of good moral things. But this is all it amounts to. Find some way to make yourself happy because it's all you got if you don't have Christ. That's what Paul is saying. We know better, don't we? We know better than this philosophy right here. This isn't how it is. We know that every sacrifice we make is compelled by a love for God and a hope for eternal reward. We know that the debt of grace that we owe to Jesus Christ constrains our every breath and compels us unto obedience to God. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14 and 15, Paul said, For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if... One died for all, then were all dead, and that he died for all, that they which live, that's you, and that's me should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. In other words, you don't live for you. Do you know that? You were saved, brought out of the spiritual death that you wallowed in to live for Christ, to live for him who died for you and who rose again. We have awoken from our blind and ignorant dream one that would try to tell us that this life is about pleasing ourselves, doing what we want, just enjoying the ride. We have awoken from the false notion that this life we live is anything other than a temporary journey on our road to eternity. We have awoken from the lie that deceives the world into thinking that they are not eternally accountable to their creator for the things that are done in this life. And so Paul says in verse 33, he says this, Be not deceived. Don't be fooled, church. Don't be fooled. And that's the message for us today. Church, don't be fooled. Be not deceived. Evil, communications, corrupt, good manners. I give you several of the Greek translations there in order, of course. Communications, association, corrupt, ruin, um, manners, customs, or usage, or habits. If we believe anything other than what the Word of God testifies in regard to our duty to obey, then we are simply, at best, being deceived. And Paul says, don't be deceived. Bad associations, in other words, bad doctrine, bad theology, these people in the church that were teaching that there is no resurrection from the dead, that's bad theology, that's bad doctrine. And he says that bad doctrine, bad communications, bad associations, bad company, it will corrupt your good Manners, it will corrupt your customs, your usage, your habits. It'll corrupt the way you live your life. Bad theology corrupts your way of living. Is theology important? You know, a lot of churches say, we don't need to teach theology. That's just book stuff. That's for pastors. Uh uh-uh. Your methodologies, your lifestyle is reflective of your theology. And I believe in, in many ways... Um, Your eschatology will dictate your theology. If you fail to have good theology, your life will eventually reflect this failure through disobedient living before God. If you reject the resurrection, then you will lose your motivation to obey. Did you know that? If If you reject the theology of the resurrection, then you will lose your motivation to obey. If you reject your moral responsibility, then you will lose your, respon- your, your motivation to obey and to share the gospel. If you reject the inspiration of scriptures, you will lose your appreciation for the reality that it is your authority. Theology has consequences. And if you place yourself under the teaching of corrupt theology, then it will corrupt your lifestyle. Be not deceived, church. Evil communications corrupt good manners that's what that verse is saying the integral message of this verse is that theology and doctrine matter so let's finish up here verse 34 and then we close apart from being deceived paul says awake awake unto righteousness wake up come out of the sleep It's time to wake up. It's time to face reality. It's time to understand what is really going on here. We need to come to our senses and understand our place in the world, understand our purpose in this life. Paul says that some in the church, this contingency of people who were fornicating and preaching that there was no resurrection from the dead and baptizing for the dead, uh, these in the church have not the knowledge of God. They don't know God. Now, this doesn't inherently mean that they aren't saved. Paul regularly used the idea of knowing God in the scriptures, not in a salvific sense, as much as in a sanctification sense, as in a fellowship with the Lord sense. Uh, Paul desired that he might know God in Philippians chapter 3, and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. In 1 John chapter 4, we see the inherent idea that that we need to know God and that those that do not love, First John 4, 7 and 8, Beloved, let us love one another for love is of God and everyone that loveth knoweth God. Uh, loveth God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God for God is love. It's not talking about salvation there. It's talking about fellowship with the Lord. The same idea here. If you are off on this doctrine, then you are, it's because you just don't understand God. You're not walking with him. The term there literally means in the Greek to be ignorant concerning God. And this is where we draw our conclusion in our application today. We as Christians are all too often comfortable in our ignorance of God. Because the less we know about God, the less we're responsible for in our minds. That's what we think. The more we learn, the more we're responsible for. Well, we're, we're responsible anyway because God's given us his word. Too many Christians call ourselves Christians but live for this life. For the pleasures that this life has to offer. I'm not saying that we sell all of our possessions and go live as hermits in the mountains. That's not what God wants. Plainly put. We need to be in the world, around the world. Paul described it earlier in 1 Corinthians as using the world but not abusing the world. Using our liberty but not abusing our liberty. We began this time this morning by asking a question. Do you really want a life that is worth living? Do you want to wake up every morning with a more urgent purpose than the day before? Do you want to live beyond this rat race of daily life that the world offers? See, the only reason why we can even have this discussion on true purpose is because Jesus Christ died on the cross to bear our sins and He rose again in victory over sin and death. Now, most of us have accepted that reality by faith. If you have not accepted the free gift of salvation by grace through faith, if you've been trusting in other things, if you've been skirting by, if you've just never known, today you have heard at least in part the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he died for you, that he bore your sin, that he rose again in victory over sin and death in the grave, and that if you will accept him, you will have eternal life. And I encourage you to make that decision today. But for the majority of us who are believers, the question is this, are you living in ignorance concerning God to your shame? That's what Paul says. He says, I speak this to your shame. It is your shame that you are allowing these false doctrines to pervade in the church. It is your shame that you are not stopping this. It is your shame that you are giving any credence to this. It is your shame that you are allowing it to continue. My question for you is, are you living in ignorance of God to your shame? Have you replaced the deep and eternal purpose of living for God and pleasing the eternal Creator with a shallow, utterly meaningless purpose of uh, pleasure and personal sin and misaligned priorities? Are you living a life of righteousness in accordance with your knowledge of God's Word? Are you doing what you know God wants you to do? Are you doing things that you know you shouldn't do? Saying things you know you shouldn't say? Watching things you know you shouldn't be watching? Pursuing pleasure through money, through amusements, through those things in your lives that are unbecoming a believer in Jesus Christ to your shame? See, we're not here playing church. We're not dressing up on Sunday to try to fool everybody into thinking we're something. We're not. We're not here to get our Christian quota for the week. We're here as a natural extension of our love for God and our desire to know Him, not just so that we can feel good about what we know, but so that we can please Him with what we do. So what's the solution? Well, first, we need to choose to do right. We need to learn what is right. We need to choose to do right. If you're having trouble obeying what you know to be right or wondering what you don't know about God's expectations, well, this is the first place to start. The deeper you know God and His Word, the deeper you will be impressed with the need to obey Him. You having trouble obeying Him? Spend more time with Him. Read His Word more. Study His Word more. Pray with Him more. You will learn to fear the Lord as you spend time with the Lord. You will, learn to o- want, you will want to obey God as you spend more time with Him. So what does this mean? Well, let me give you some practical questions if you feel as though you need to do better here. How often do you read your Bible? The revealed Word of God to man? Do you know it? Are you memorizing Bible verses so that they can be on your mind even when your Bible isn't handy? Do you know your Bible? Do you know your doctrines? Do you know your theology? And don't just learn about the Bible. Do you know the Bible? Because the character of God is kind of a nuanced thing. It doesn't just come through direct statements. God is love. God is light. God is righteous. They're there. But it comes through a natural outworking of particularly the narratives of the Old Testament as we see how God dealt with Abraham, Sodom, Gomorrah, Isaac, Jacob, Israel, as he dealt with David, as he dealt with Solomon, as he dealt with Saul, as he dealt with the prophets. We see how God's character, what does it mean that God is righteous? What does it mean that God is holy? Well, we see it. We see it in Christ, in the narratives of the Gospels. Are you memorizing? Are you reading? Does your family talk about the Bible together? You've got a long car ride. What are you going to do? you to turn on a movie. Well, how about we shut that off for a few minutes? Let's talk about the Bible. Let's grow in grace and in knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's talk about some things that we struggle with. Let's let's learn. Let's grow. Maybe you need to start coming to more services. We meet 4 times a week. Maybe maybe Sunday school. Sunday school is a pretty special time. We memorize scripture together as a church. We hold ourselves accountable every six weeks to that memory time. We have worksheets with age-appropriate questions where your family can study the Word together and, and talk about relevant topics. The goal is that you will be able to feed yourself, learn yourself, and grow yourself. In a manner of speaking, my job is to put myself out of business. Sort of. Not really, because the church is always needed, isn't it? The church is here to help you grow in ways that you couldn't otherwise, in fact. To give you an opportunity not just to grow, but also to help others grow. For you to pinpoint somebody who's where you used to be and say, Hey, can I help you? Can I, can I, can I lift you up? Can we meet once a week? Get a coffee? Open our Bibles? And I can show you some things that the Lord's taught me. And maybe you can show me some things that the Lord's taught you. And we can grow. This is the base of operations for us to go into this community and make a difference. So the church is needed. But how are you doing? I know I fall short. This message was a conviction to my heart this week. I'm altering some of my own schedule and my own determinations to make sure I spend more time with my Lord. Perhaps you need to do the same. Let's uh, close in a word of prayer.